The Seal of Prophets, His Personality and Character by Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, Khalifatul Masih IV. Text of a lecture delivered by the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jama'at on 15th October 1989 at Heathland School, Hounslow. We now present this book in audio form. Publisher's Note On 15th October 1989, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, the supreme head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, delivered the following lecture about the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, entitled, The Seal of Prophets, His Personality and Character. The address was delivered at Heathland School in Hounslow. Many distinguished guests, including the mayor of Hounslow and some members of parliament, attended it. In 1992, this address was published in the form of a booklet. By the grace of Allah, it has now been revised, and this edition is reprinted with some amendments and additions. The Seal of Prophets, His Personality and Character Say, I am only a man like yourselves, but I have received the revelation that your God is only one God. So let him who hopes to meet his Lord do good deeds, and let him join no one in the worship of his Lord. Holy Quran, chapter 18, verse 111. Your Worship, the Mayor of Hounslow, Honorable Members of Parliament, and other distinguished guests. We consider this function a very holy occasion because of the subject to be discussed here. I am deeply honored and overjoyed to speak to you about something I love so much. Chapter 1. Kalima Shahada and Western View of Muhammad To begin with, I recited before you the Kalima Shahada. Then I read the opening chapter of the Holy Quran and a verse from a chapter called Al-Kahaf. Kalima Shahada, which I recited, was the more elaborate version of the one generally known. It is in two parts. First, Allah is one, there is no God but Allah, and the other, Muhammad is his servant, a man and a prophet. The emphasis is on man before you move on to consider him as a prophet. It was the shorter version of the Kalima that was before Gibbon, a famous Orientalist and historian, when he opined on it. Bosworth Smith writes about it in Muhammad and Muhammadanism as follows. It is almost equally strange that Gibbon, who has done such full justice to Muhammad in the general result, should say at starting, Muhammad's religion consists of an eternal truth and a necessary fiction, there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. Smith goes on to develop this by saying, It was, as I have endeavored to show, no fiction to Muhammad himself or to his followers. Had it been so, Muhammadanism could never have risen as it did, nor be what it is now. We are grateful to Bosworth Smith for fairly presenting one excellent Western attitude towards Islam, and particularly towards the holy founder of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He discusses the two phases of Islam's rise and fall in his lecture, Muhammad and Muhammadanism, and I quote from him. During the first few centuries of Muhammadanism, Christendom could not afford to criticize or explain. It could only tremble and obey. But when the Saracens had received their first check in the heart of France, the nations which had been flying before them faced round as a herd of cows will sometimes do when the single dog that has put them to flight is called off. And though they did not yet venture to fight, they could at least calumniate their retreating foe. Now follows the examples of calumniation as recorded by Smith. He says, In the romance of Turpin, quoted by Renan, Muhammad, the fanatical destroyer of all idolatry, is turned himself into an idol of gold, and under the name of Mahmet, is reported to be the object of worship at Cadiz. Then he says, He is Antichrist, the man of sin, the little horn, and I know not what besides, nor do I think that a single writer, with the one strange exception of the Jew Maimonides, till towards the middle of the 18th century, treats of him as otherwise than a rank impostor and false prophet. To build this subject further, he goes on quoting from Renan, the romances of Baphomet, so common in the 14th and 15th centuries, attribute any and every crime to him, just as the Athanasians did to Arius. He is a debauchee, a camel-stealer, 
A cardinal who, having failed to obtain the object of every cardinal's ambition, invents a new religion to revenge himself on his brethren. He occupies a conspicuous place in the inferno. Dante places him in his ninth circle among the sowers of religious discord. With the leaders of the Reformation, Muhammad, the greatest of all reformers, meets with little sympathy, and their hatred of him, as perhaps was natural, seems to vary inversely as their knowledge. Luther doubts whether he is not worse than Leo. Melanchthon believes him to be either Gog or Magog, and probably both. See Quarterly Review, Art, Islam by Deutsch, number 254, page 296, Muhammad and Muhammadanism, Lecture 2, pages 59 and 60. Chapter 2, New Era of Interpretation of Islam Unfortunately, this sad chapter of calumny and extreme expression of hatred against the holy founder of Islam did not come to an end. However, we do see a change in the wind which has brought about one of the outstanding writers on Islam from England, that is, Thomas Carlyle. He ushered in a new era of an approach toward Islam. In an age darkened by hatred, he was the first lark with the courage and nobility to sing the praises of Prophet Muhammad, and was the first swallow to give an indication of the coming spring. After Carlyle, things began to change but did not go on to develop into a steady trend. Instead, it remained an interrupted phenomena. We see that all through the history of criticism of the Prophet Muhammad, there were scholars who sank back to their past with a Salman Rushdie being born here and there. The birth of Rushdie is not a new phenomenon in the history of religious bigotry. Deeply related to ignorance, the lack of tolerance is something well known to man. The introduction of the great Orientalist Carlyle has already been made. Now let me quote two important passages from his book, Heroes and Hero Worship. He says, Alas, such theories are very lamentable. If we would attain to knowledge of anything in God's true creation, let us disbelieve them wholly. They are the product of an age of skepticism. They indicate the saddest spiritual paralysis and mere death life of the souls of men. More godless theory, I think, was never promulgated in this earth. A false man found a religion? Why, a false man cannot build a brick house? If he do not know and follow truly the properties of mortar, burnt clay, and what else he works in, it is no house that he makes, but a rubbish heap. It will not stand for twelve centuries to lodge a hundred and eighty millions. It will fall straightway. Page 279. He observes, The lies which well-meaning zeal has heaped around this man are disgraceful to ourselves only. When Pococchi inquired of Grotius where the proof was of that story of the pigeon, trained to pick peas from Mohammed's ear and pass for an angel dictating to him. Grotius answered that there was no proof. It is really time to dismiss all that. Page 279. The one central, most important epithet in the Kalima is the word Abd, which describes the prophet as a man and a slave, a man so true that he became the most devoted servant of his Lord. Today I have chosen not to speak on the prophecies of Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, but have elected to highlight his personality as a man, as a simple servant of God, and as a humble person who lived all his life among his brothers, followers, and enemies as a true man. In this regard, I have chosen a few facets of his real life and will share them with you for you to judge how close to humans, yet how vastly different he was. Why I said that being Abbot was more important is because I believe that the prophecies of a prophet are always being disputed by the enemy. At one end, the prophet is close to his God, and at the other, he is close to humanity. The humans cannot directly judge the authenticity of his claim of being from God, but they most certainly can judge him as a human. If as a man he is true, it is impossible for him to be a false prophet. Again I quote Bosworth Smith, who in turn quotes Sir William Muir in the following words. Muhammad was of middle height and of a strongly built frame. His head was large and across his ample forehead and above finely arching eyebrows ran a strongly marked vein, which when he was angry would turn black and throb visibly. His eyes were coal black and piercing in their brightness. His hair curled slightly, 
and a long beard which, like other Orientals, he would stroke when in deep thought, added to the general impressiveness of his appearance. His step was quick and firm, like that of one descending a hill. Page 83. Bosworth Smith, in the 1874 edition of his book Muhammad and Muhammadanism, writes about his character in the following words. He was a man of few words and good faith. They called him Al-Amin, the trusty. His tending his employer's flocks, his journeys to Syria, possibly his short-lived friendship there with Sergius or Bahira, an Astorian monk, his famous vow to succor the oppressed, his employment by Khadija in a trade venture, and his subsequent happy marriage with her are about the only noteworthy external incidents in his early life. Page 75. However, in the 1986 edition of the same book, published long after his death, we see how this has been changed. Hitherto a man of few words and with few friends, he was yet noble with his own small circle of truthfulness and good faith. Men called him Al-Amin, or the trusty. A rich widow named Khadija employed him to go on some trading journeys for her to Syria. The shepherd became a camel driver, and the trust committed to him he discharged with such fidelity and prudence that Khadija offered him her hand in marriage. She, some fifteen years older than he, old enough, that is, in that eastern climate, to be his mother. Yet the marriage was one of real affection and respect, and from that time to the day of her death, a period of twenty-four years, Muhammad remained faithful to her and took no second wife, though the universal custom of his countrymen would have countenanced him in so doing. Pages 95 and 96. Describing his early life, Carlyle tells us in his book, But from an early age he had been remarked as a thoughtful man. His companions named him Al-Amin, the faithful, a man of truth and fidelity, true in what he did, in what he spake and thought. They noted that he always meant something, a man rather taciturn in speech, silent when there was nothing to be said, but pertinent, wise, sincere when he did speak always throwing light on the matter. This is the only sort of speech worth speaking. Through life we find him to have been regarded as an altogether solid, brotherly, genuine man, a serious, sincere character, yet amiable, cordial, companionable, jocose even. A good laugh in him withal. There are men whose laugh is as untrue as anything about them, who cannot laugh. One hears of Mahomet's beauty, his fine, sagacious, honest face, brown, florid complexion, beaming black eyes. I somehow like, too, that vein on the brow, which swelled up black when he was in anger. Pages 287 and 288. Prophet Muhammad had lived among his people for 40 years before he was commissioned by God as a prophet. Even the severest critics of his character cannot put a finger on any blemish in his life up to that age. There is no dissension or disagreement among historians regarding this fact. As such, the Holy Quran challenged those who rejected him by saying, Of course I have lived among you throughout my life before this. Why don't you use your wisdom? Holy Quran, chapter 10, verse 17. Do you not see that a man who lived forty years of blameless life suddenly cannot turn into the most wanton man on earth? He who never spoke a lie about his fellow beings, how could he dare speak lies about his Creator, the God he loved so much? Chapter 3. Early Life and Beginning of Prophethood Khadijah was referred to earlier as his employer. She was the rich lady who sent him on a trade mission up to Syria. He was found to be always successful in these assignments. But I believe there was another part of this trade which was the most successful of all, but is usually omitted from being mentioned. When Khadijah ultimately married him, he was a man of twenty-five, whereas she had already passed her youth and was forty years of age. Despite this age difference, when she proposed, he accepted and lived with her for another twenty-five years. After this marriage had taken place, knowing his dignity and character, Khadijah offered him her entire property and gave him everything she had. The trade I mentioned as the most honorable, most wonderful, and the most successful was this. Having received all that wealth and property, he distributed it entirely to the destitute, without keeping a penny for himself. It is also a great tribute to Khadijah, who being the richest woman of Arabia, 
suddenly became one of its poorest and never raised an eyebrow, living the rest of her life most faithfully with Prophet Muhammad, made peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. She was in love with the man who had not yet emerged as a prophet. However, it was not the outward charm of that man, but his inward beauty, sparkling like a jewel, which she was in love with. This became evident when the holy founder of Islam received his first message from God. He was so completely shaken by its force that he returned home trembling as if a fever was about to take hold of him. Khadijah thought he was about to fall ill and loaded him with blankets. Later he told her about the experience he had of an angel appearing in the form of a man and commanding him to recite. He was fearful about himself, entirely shaken. He could not fathom what was happening to him. Khadijah, on hearing this, addressed him and said, I have known you for some time, and I know you look after the requirements of the needy and share their miseries. You are a person who carried the burdens of those whose backs are broken under the load of afflictions. You are restoring the virtues which have disappeared from the earth. You are kind and considerate to relations, and observe the very best conduct in relationships. You are true, and always have been so. How could God let you go to waste? I believe in what you have seen. It was purity of the man within him which convinced his wife that he was a true prophet. As such, she became the first believer in the holy founder of Islam and realized that it was impossible for a true man to emerge as a false prophet. Bosworth Smith has related this incident in his own words and says, Allah will not suffer thee to fall to shame. Hast thou not been loving to thy kinsfolk, kind to thy neighbors, charitable to the poor? faithful to thy word, and ever a defender of the truth? Page 78. In contrast to the attitude of Khadijah, the opinion of all his friends was suddenly transformed after he declared himself to be a messenger from God. Those who used to call him Al-Amin, the most trustworthy, who went to him for resolving their disputes and who trusted him entirely, started blaming him as guilty of extreme falsehood. Bosworth Smith records his contradictory attitude of the Meccans after Prophet Muhammad's pronouncement of being commissioned from God in the following words. People pointed the finger of scorn at him as he passed by. There goeth the son of Abdullah, who hath his converse with the heavens. They called him a driveler, a stargazer, a maniac poet. His uncle sneered, and the main body of the citizens treated him with that of contemptuous indifference which must have been harder for him to bear than active persecution. Page 79. Then he tells us that Meccans tried persuasion and treaties, bribes and threats against Prophet Muhammad. Should they array against me and put the sun on my right hand and the moon on my left, said Muhammad? Yet while God should command me, I would not renounce my purpose. Page 80. These are not the words, nor this the course of an impostor, writes Bosworth Smith. Prophet Muhammad was a humble man in every relationship with people and was humble, of course, to God. He was humble even to those who had accepted him to be the prophet of God. Once in Medina, after he had already been told by God that he was the seal of prophets, which means the very best among them, one of his companions developed an argument with someone who held in very high respect an earlier prophet by the name of Jonah. The companion of the holy founder of Islam said that Muhammad was superior whereas the other said that Jonah was far better. When this was reported to the Holy Prophet, he said, Do not declare my excellence over Jonah, son of Muta, because it is against the dignity of human relationship to go on boasting about your leaders against the leaders of others. The matter of superiority of one over the other is a question to be decided by God, not something to be exalted over. That was the message given to us, unfortunately forgotten by many Muslims of today. A similar incident happened between a Jew and a Muslim over the question of superiority between Muhammad and Moses. The Muslim became extremely annoyed with the haughty attitude of the Jew and even slapped him. This Jew went to the Holy Prophet and complained. The companion responsible for this was very strongly rebuked by the Holy Prophet, who then used the same expression as used in the last incident. Don't declare me to be better than Moses. He went on to relate the excellence of Moses and paid tribute to him by way of comforting the distress caused to the Jew's heart. We hear of the Holy Prophet standing the whole night seeking forgiveness from Allah. 
His companions noticed that his feet became swollen because of his standing the most part of the night in prayer. They had never seen him committing a sin and believed him to be the most innocent man on earth. They asked him, Sinless as you are, why, O prophet of God, you seek forgiveness from Allah? He replied, Should I not be grateful to my God for all the favors bestowed upon me? At another occasion, when the same question about forgiveness and a man's piety was being discussed, the holy prophet told his companions that no human on earth would be forgiven because of good deeds. It is only Allah's grace which ultimately delivers humans from the bondage of sin and grants them admission into heaven. This made them wonder, and one of them asked, O prophet of God, will you not be forgiven for your piety and good deeds? He said, No, not even me. I will be forgiven only by the grace of God. Everything belongs to him, nothing is ours. Whatever he has granted us, we use it and employ it to the best of our knowledge and abilities. Even a man with acts of piety, having spent all his life doing good deeds, will not be forgiven because of his actions. Those noble opportunities were given to him by God. His humility knew no bounds. When sitting among his followers, ordinarily clothed, eating the same food as they did, he did not occupy a very special place. Many a time, people were mistaken as to who was the holy founder of Islam. Abu Bakr, who later became the first caliph of Islam, was older than he and perhaps had a longer beard, I don't know, but something in him led some strangers to address him as the prophet of God. In a respectful attitude, he would then turn to the holy prophet and lead them to him. Once, Umar, who later became the second caliph of Islam, took his permission to perform Umrah, a lesser pilgrimage to Mecca than Hajj. The holy prophet of Islam turned to him and said, Yes, go ahead, perform the Umrah, and please do not forget me in your prayers. Such was the humility of the man on whose prayers every Muslim depended that he was asking one of his own servants to remember him in his prayers. All through his life he shared in every type of hardship faced by the Muslims in general. During the Battle of the Ditch he is known to have suffered hunger along with the others. When portions were allotted in digging the ditch he was no exception and did his part of labor. Once a companion saw him in a state that overwhelmed him, he remarked, On the day of the battle of Al-Ahzab, I saw the Holy Prophet carrying earth which was covering the whiteness of his abdomen. He was saying, Without you, O Lord, we would have no guidance, nor have given any charity, nor prayed, so please bless us with tranquility and make firm our feet when we meet our enemy. Indeed, people have oppressed us, but never shall we yield if they try to bring affliction upon us because of you. Jabir narrates that they were digging in the days of Al-Azab and came across a big rock. They told the Holy Prophet about it. When he got up, they saw a stone tied to his belly. He had not eaten anything for three days. It was an Arab custom to tie a stone like this when extremely oppressed with hunger. Perhaps this helped to alleviate its pangs. In another narration of the same incident, we find that companions of the Holy Prophet had a stone each tied to their bellies, but when the Holy Prophet lifted his shirt to show them, they saw two stones tied to his belly, indicating that he was suffering from hunger more than them. Jabir, on seeing this plight, could not bear it any longer. He took his permission to leave for the women's quarters, sought his wife, and asked her if she had anything to eat. She said that there was a goat and some flour. He told her to slaughter the goat because he'd seen the Holy Prophet in such an unbearable state. That was the man, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who always shared miseries with his devoted servants. There was no difference whatsoever. On the contrary, from many narrations on this subject, we can believe that he suffered the most. He was a dauntless, fearless person who never refrained from approaching danger head on. In his lifetime, he fought many defensive battles without ever waging a single offensive war. He was usually found in the most dangerous areas of the battle where the fighting would rage like mad. A narrator reports that when the Holy Prophet was sought during a battle, they would look for him in that area where combat was at its fiercest, and he would always be in the midst. Once in Medina, during the dead of the night, people heard some disturbing noises. In those days, attack was feared from all sides, so they saddled their horses and went on to investigate. 
They found the holy prophet, already returning from that place, riding an unsaddled horse. He had gone in singly, in haste, without even preparing his ride. He assured them that it was nothing serious, and they could all return to their homes. Once during a journey on a very hot summer's day, he was resting under the shade of a tree. A Bedouin who belonged to the idolaters saw his opportunity as the holy prophet was alone. He picked up the sword of Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and woke him up saying, tauntingly, Who would save you from my hands? He replied, Allah. This short answer so overwhelmed this man that his hands trembled and the sword fell from his hands. This time the holy prophet picked up the sword and asked the man, Now who would save you from me? The man, trembling with fear, could only reply, You are a gracious and merciful person. Please spare my life. The holy prophet said, Woe unto you. You did not even draw a lesson. It was God who saved me from you. This man was pardoned, of course. The holy prophet was a very big-hearted person. The holy prophet loved no place on earth greater than a mosque. This love in his heart was so intense that it is inconceivable for anyone else to have similar feelings. Once a Bedouin who was not a Muslim came to visit Medina and was lodged in the mosque. In those days, and even today in some parts of the world, mosques are used as guest houses. Being a place of worship, mosques are kept very clean, even shoes are not permitted inside. But this man, out of ignorance, started urinating in the courtyard of the mosque. The Holy Prophet and his companions were present in the mosque at that time. Some of the companions rushed towards him to punish him for this offense, but were immediately stopped by the Holy Prophet. They were told not to disturb him during the act. When he had finished, the Holy Prophet asked for a bucket of water, and he himself washed that place. Then he returned to his companions and said, You were not raised by God to cause difficulties for people. Always remember that you were raised to bring relief to mankind. Once a delegation of Christian leaders from Najran came to Medina for debating issues of difference between Islam and Christianity. They stayed there for three days. While engaged in a dialogue in the Holy Prophet's mosque, the time for their prayers arrived. They asked permission from the Holy Prophet to go out to offer their prayers. The Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that the mosque was also a place of worship and they were welcome to pray there, and they did. In the meantime, some companions reached the mosque and saw the Christians worshipping, facing the opposite direction from the Qibla in that mosque. They moved forward to object to this, but he firmly prohibited them from interfering and said, I have permitted them because this is the house of God, and no man has the right to object to anyone who worships God in a place devoted for the sake of worship. On another occasion, a delegation from the monastery of St. Catherine begged him to write a pronouncement to the effect that their monastery should be protected when Islam would become victorious in that part of the world. The Holy Prophet immediately accepted the request and wrote orders to that effect. To my knowledge, the parchment on which this order was written is still preserved in Turkey. It reads, No one should ever interfere with the property of the monastery, nor with the figure of the cross or any other article which represents their faith. They should not be molested in any manner whatsoever. Anyone ignoring this will not be one of us. So much is said about the prevailing hatred between Muslims and Jews, but it was just one-sided during the time of the Holy Prophet. Although the Jewish clans in and around Medina vehemently opposed Prophet Muhammad, his conduct to them always remained just and humane. Once, when he was sitting with his companions, a funeral procession passed nearby and he stood up in respect. Someone pointed out that the corpse belonged to a Jew. He replied, Was this person not given life by God? Was he not a creation of God? Remember in things which are common to man, we must show respect, irrespective of one's religion, race, or creed. This is the essence of Islam. It was not only taught by word of mouth, but was also practiced in every detail. He was a man of love, a love of beauty mingled with humility. He loved children, even respected them. After the demise of the Holy Prophet, one of his companions passed through a group of children and said, Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you. They were young and were surprised that a highly respected elderly person, a companion of the Holy Founder, was greeting them by saying, Peace be on you. When he found the children so surprised, he told them, 
I always observed the holy founder doing this. It was his habit to take the lead in saying assalamu alaikum even to children. Osama bin Zaid narrates that while he was a child, he was picked up by the holy prophet and put on one of his knees. Then the holy prophet put his grandson Hassan on his other knee and embracing them both, prayed to God. O oh my Lord, show mercy to them as I am showing mercy to them. This incident left an indelible mark on Osama bin Zaid, who reported it with tears in his eyes. The holy founder of Islam had a very pleasant sense of humor. He used to joke with children to amuse them with light talk. However, his humor would never hurt anyone. There are many reports of his jokes with children and sometimes with old people. Anas reports, The Holy Prophet used to become very friendly with children. Once my younger brother's sparrow called Nukar died. The Holy Prophet cheered him up by saying, O oh, Abu Omer, what has little Nugar, calling it as Nugar, done to you? Whenever he met him, he said the same thing until Abu Omer forgot his Nugar and started enjoying being addressed by the Holy Prophet thus. Once Hassan, the grandson of the Holy Prophet, wanted to ride a camel. He seated him on his shoulders and posed to be his camel. This made Hazrat Hassan smile with pleasure. All such small jokes are not reported, but this much is certainly reported that he always had similar pleasing talks with small children. Once an old woman inquired from him whether she would also be granted permission to enter paradise. In answer, the Holy Prophet said that no old person would ever enter paradise. She was deeply taken aback at that and expressed her grief. The Holy Prophet smilingly put her at ease by observing, all those who enter the paradise would have been turned young. Chapter 4. The Prophet's View on Justice The Holy Prophet was a man of strict and absolute justice. However, his justice was complemented with a balancing sense of perfect kindness. In the Battle of Badr, one of his uncles, Abbas, while fighting on the side of the idolaters, was arrested by the Muslims. Like other prisoners, his hands and feet were also bound against a pillar in the mosque, but rather too tight. The Holy Prophet, whose home was adjacent to the mosque, could not sleep at night, distressed at hearing his sobs and cries. When this was reported to his companions present in the mosque, they loosened Abbas's ties. After a while, when the Holy Prophet couldn't hear any moaning, he became worried and inquired as to why the sounds had stopped. Somebody said that the ties of Abbas had been relaxed. He said, If you have done this to Abbas, do the same to every prisoner. This having been done, he could at least rest in peace. This is how he showed his kindness without compromising justice. Once a daughter of a prominent Arab chieftain was caught stealing. Her name was Fatima, the same as that of the Holy Prophet's daughter. This matter was being disputed outside the house of the Holy Prophet, and some people were asking for mercy as she was the daughter of a powerful chief. They persuaded Osama, the son of a liberated slave of the Holy Prophet, whom the Holy Prophet loved so much, to intercede on her behalf. He proceeded to do so, but this annoyed the Holy Prophet so much that the vein on his forehead darkened, and he said, What do you mean by this intercession? I would most certainly have done what Allah wants me to do, even if my daughter Fatima had committed this crime. The Holy Prophet once owed money to a Jew. The Jew thought it was overdue, whereas it was not so. He confronted the Holy Prophet and demanded his money, using very harsh words, and accused that all Quraysh were bad debtors who never honored their promises. He had not only insulted the Holy Prophet, but also his tribe. Umar, who was also there, became extremely annoyed and his hand went for his sword. The Holy Prophet stopped Umar who had now used some abusive words against the Jew and was perhaps about to strike him, and said, Umar, you should have behaved differently. First you should have told me to be mindful of the contract and pay in time. Then you should have told him to be kind in his demands and merciful to his debtors. Then he turned to another of his companions and said, Still, there are three days. I know the limit is not yet over, but pay him whatever I owe and add some more because of the harsh attitude of Umar. This was his behavior when openly insulted in the company of his companions. His sense of justice was supreme. It was absolute, not in any way connected to his personal, tribal, or religious loyalties. 
Today, the Jewish-Muslim relationship is a much misunderstood concept and needs to be corrected. I will quote some examples from the Holy Prophet's relationship with Jews because we must follow his conduct in this regard. Any contradictory attitude has to be dismissed. The Holy Founder of Islam, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had built an image in the society of being a man of absolute justice. Even when there were feuds between Muslims and Jews, or Muslims and idolaters, they would seek his judgment. In one case, it is reported that a piece of land was disputed between a Muslim and a Jew. They approached the Holy Prophet and asked him to decide the matter. The Holy Prophet first asked the Muslim claimant to provide proof. The Muslim said that he had no witnesses, but was telling the truth on his word of honor. The Holy Prophet ignored him and asked the respondent to swear in the name of God if the land belonged to him. The Muslim protested and said, O Prophet of God, he will swear falsely. It is trivial for him to be untruthful for a piece of land. The Holy Prophet replied, There is no other way to decide this matter. If he swears, then the land would be his. And that is exactly what happened. Once a small trade party visited Khaibar, an area occupied by a Jewish clan by the name of Bani Nazir. These people were earlier expelled from Medina and were rehabilitated there, but that is a different story. This place had become a Jewish stronghold from then on. When the trade party from among the Muslims visited Khaibar, one of them was murdered. They returned to the Holy Prophet and asked that the responsibility for the murder should be placed on Jews of that area and blood money imposed on them as a group. The Holy Prophet said, Do you have any proof of this man being murdered by a Jew? They replied, There is no witness, but it has to be one of them. Nobody else lives there. The Holy Prophet said, The only available course is that the Jews must swear their innocence. The Jews did that and were acquitted of the murder. However, by the order of the Holy Prophet, the aggrieved were paid blood money from the state treasury. We see in him kindness wedded to his sense of justice in the most beautiful and well-poised way, which is indeed a pleasure to watch. The Holy Prophet was also very kind to his servants and slaves. The question of slavery is a much misunderstood concept in the West. I will not touch upon this in any detail, but I assure you that there is only one permissible way mentioned in the Holy Quran by which slaves can be enslaved. This is in chapter Al-Anfa'al, verse 68. It reads that the only way of making human beings slaves is after a very severe battle, not just a skirmish. In those days, there was no system of prisoner-of-war camps, so the prisoners would be distributed to different homes. We also see that the Holy Quran goes on to suggest numerous routes for liberation of the slaves. There are so many verses on this subject that after going through these, it is surprising how slavery could ever be conceived by the present-day Muslims as validated perpetually. According to the Holy Quran, if a slave is not liberated by ransom paid by his relatives and has no other means of getting liberated, he can demand his liberation from a Muslim court. All he has to do is to appeal to the court asking immediate release, on the condition that he will earn and pay back on small easy installments whatever cost is considered to be his value. These injunctions were very strictly imposed in the days of the Holy Prophet. Sometimes thousands of slaves were liberated in a single day. Owing to the legacy of the past, and also because those were troubled times, some slaves were inherited by people and went on serving private homes. The Holy Prophet repeatedly admonished Muslims that they should be as kind to them as to their kith and kin. We find mention of many such incidents. For instance, when a master and a slave went together for buying something, the shopkeepers could not distinguish between them as to who was the master and who was the slave. Once Ali, who later became the fourth caliph of Islam after the Holy Prophet, went shopping and asked for two identical pieces of clothing. The shopkeeper suggested that he should buy clothes of different color. He said, My master, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, told me to treat my slaves as I would my own kith and kin. So whatever I wear, I shall make my slave wear the same. Abu Masud Badri relates, I was striking a slave with a whip when I heard a voice behind me. Beware, Abu Masud. 
I was so upset that I did not recognize the voice until the person drew near, and I discovered that it was the Holy Prophet, and he was saying, Beware, Abu Masud. Allah has more power over you than you have over this slave. And I responded, Messenger of Allah, I will set him free to win the pleasure of Allah. The Holy Prophet observed, If you had not done that, then you would have been singed by the fire. Zad is often quoted in the history of Islam because he is the only slave to have lived with the holy founder of Islam. He reports, During my service to the Holy Prophet, I made many mistakes, but he never said, Woe to me, even once. He never criticized me. There was no question of beating me, of course. Zad was bought as a slave by Muhammad before his prophethood during the pre-Islamic period. Zad's father and uncle who lived in Persia came to learn that Zad could be found in Mecca serving as a slave to Hazrat Muhammad. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. They approached him in Mecca and begged him to liberate Zad. He said, Of course I will do that, but why not ask him? He is a free man. If he wants to stay, I cannot compel him to leave. So he kept quiet while Zad was made to appear before his father and uncle. There was an emotional meeting as they had met after a long time. They asked Zad to return to his home. He replied, If the choice is mine, I will not return because I have discovered a man who is dearer to me than my father, my mother, my uncle, and everyone else in the world. Hearing this, the holy founder of Islam took them out and in the presence of some people proclaimed, I declare that Zad is no longer a slave. From now on he will be my adopted son. Chapter 5 The Prophet as a Family Man now I will turn to another aspect of the Holy Prophet Muhammad as a father, as a husband, and as a man in relation to his other relatives. Hazrat Aisha reports that whenever the Holy Prophet's daughter Fatima visited him, he always stood up, showing respect for her, kissed her hand, and had her seated where he himself had been seated. He always treated with kindness and respect the relatives of his late wife Khadija, extending the same to her friends. Likewise, he treated the relatives of his wet nurse, Halima. Once a close relative of hers visited the Prophet. He stood up and spread a sheet for her to sit upon. When inquired about her, she was introduced by him as a close relative to his wet nurse, whom he respected like he would respect his own mother. In relation to his wives, although there are reports of Aisha and his other wives losing their temper with him, Never once is he reported to have retorted in the same way. He is never known to have addressed them harshly. Aisha narrates that he helped her in the daily household chores, all this over and above his duties to the whole of mankind as a prophet of God. He mended his own clothes and shoes, went himself to fetch water for his use, and would never seek help in these matters. This aspect of his character impressed his companions immensely. Aisha describes his bedding as a sack of hide filled with leaves. She says, We never ate bread made of wheat for three consecutive days. There were times when months would pass and we did not eat meat or bread, instead filled our bellies with dates and some milk, except for an odd present when someone would slaughter a sheep and send us a piece of meat. Umar narrates, I went into a small room which was occupied by the holy founder of Islam. He was lying on a straw bedding so rough in nature that on the side he was leaning, I saw straw marks all over his body. I scanned the room and it was empty. There was nothing except for a small bucket of water and one or two odd things. I knew him to be the most beloved of God, a person who had reached the summit of humanity. This contrast so overwhelmed me with sorrow that I started to cry. The Holy Prophet turned to me and said, Umar, what has ailed thee? I said, O messenger of God, God loves you so much, you are the best ever created by him, yet I see you in this state of extreme austerity. You don't have proper bedding, you don't have any articles to decorate your house, there is nothing. The Holy Prophet smiled and said, Umar, would you prefer worldly things of this life to what is in store for us by God in the life to come? Umar replied, Surely the things to come will be better. This is a small incident, but could an imposter do this? Why do people concoct lies? For what purpose? Is it to live such lives of austerity and pain, and for sharing miseries of their time with their devoted servants? If that is a lie, then there is no sense in truth itself. Everything in man has to be false.
Chapter 6. The Prophet's Treatment of Animals The Holy Prophet was extremely kind even to animals. Once on a journey, he heard cries of a small bird in distress. He turned to his companions and asked what had happened to the bird. One of them said that he had taken two eggs from her nest. The Holy Prophet said, Return them immediately. In another narration of the same incident, it is said that two chicks and not eggs had been taken, and the Holy Prophet said to his companions that no mother should ever be pained on account of her offspring. The Holy Prophet once narrated an incident to his companions. A man who was thirsty in a desert discovered a well full of water. He climbed down and drank his fill. Upon coming out, he observed a dog panting with thirst, perhaps about to die. He went back in and filled his shoes with water, then holding them in his teeth, returned to the surface and quenched the thirst of the dog. The Holy Founder said, God has told me that this man was pardoned for all his previous sins. In another narration, it is said that this was a prostitute who did this. Her whole life was full of sins, but she was pardoned in the sight of God for an act of kindness to an animal. One of his companions asked if they would be rewarded for acts of mercy to animals. He said, Yes, all those animals who have wet livers. The word wet in Arabic is used to indicate softness and sensibility. I have translated it literally, but the connotation is that any animal with sensibility and sensitivity to pain is to be treated kindly, and God would reward for all such acts of kindness. Once the Holy Prophet saw someone milking a goat and was worried if any milk was left for its kids. He admonished the man to always leave enough milk for the hungry kids. He prohibited his companions from killing any bird or animal just for the sake of killing. He said, you will be answerable to God for killing purposelessly and without justification. When asked what would be the justification, he said, you may only kill animals when you need their meat. He then reminded them that even in killing they must not be bereft of mercy. Kill in a manner that the animal feels least pain. Some people ask me if the modern style of slaughtering is Islamic, which is first stunning the animal and then slaughtering it. In answer, I say that it is not un-Islamic. I do not agree with Orthodox Muslim scholars who say that this system was unknown to early Islam. The instruments which help alleviate the pain of animals were not available in those days. However, the principle that even in killing you should show mercy was enunciated by the holy founder of Islam himself. Chapter 7. The Controversy Over Blasphemy Now I turn to the most hotly debated question of today, that of blasphemy. Wherever I visit in the world, this question pursues me. I am asked about Khomeini's edict of death against Salman Rushdie. I tell them the Islam I learned from the Holy Prophet speaks of no punishment whatsoever against blasphemy. No question of death or anything else for that matter. Among other things, I quote this particular incident in the life of the Holy Prophet, also briefly recorded in the Holy Quran. Before the Holy Prophet's arrival in Medina, there was a prominent leader who by the consensus of Medinite was rising to be their joint leader. His name was Abdullah bin Obey bin Salul. After the Prophet's arrival, things gradually changed, and instead of Abdullah, the Holy Prophet was accepted by the common consensus of people as their new leader. This made Abdullah bin Obey bin Salul extremely jealous. He went on giving voice to his injured feelings in one way or another. His behavior was such that the other Muslims referred to him as the chief monophic, meaning the chief of hypocrites. Once when returning from an expedition which was overall a failure, and all participants were extremely tired and disappointed, this man Abdullah thought it a fit time to take his revenge. In the presence of a few people he declared that upon returning to Medina, the noblest among them would turn out in disgrace the meanest of them. The message was clear and everyone knew what he meant. Umar, upon hearing this, asked permission of the Holy Prophet to kill this man. He said that the insult on the person of the Holy Prophet was far too much for them to tolerate. But the Holy Prophet did not allow any retribution. It is reported that after this, Abdullah's own son also approached the Holy Prophet and said, O messenger of God, perhaps you thought that if you had permitted someone else to kill my father, 
I, being his son, may harbor a private sense of revenge. However, my father deserves this punishment for the insult he has hurled against you, so please permit me to slay him. The holy prophet smiled and said, No, there is nothing to be done. Your father will not be punished by anyone. They all returned to Medina, and for many years this man lived in peace under the full protection of the holy founder of Islam, against whom he had blasphemed. When he died, the holy prophet decided to lead his funeral prayers. This was a bit too much for some of his companions. Umar reports that he blocked his passage and said, Is he not the leader of the hypocrites? Is he not the one about whom God has said that even if you ask forgiveness for him seventy times, he would not be forgiven? Then why, O prophet of God, who is the recipient of all these revelations, have you decided to lead his funeral prayer? The answer was, Umar, get aside. If God has informed me that he would not forgive the hypocrites, even if I prayed for them seventy times, I would pray for them much more than that, in the hope that Allah will ultimately forgive them. Such was the character of the holy founder of Islam. He was a man of extreme compassion, a man of principles, a man who lived a life of truth and nothing but the truth. When he found that the days of return to his holy master Allah were nigh, the holy prophet addressed a large gathering. It was the largest gathering that he had ever spoken to. The occasion was of the last pilgrimage, also called Hijatul Veda. During that sermon, his message was to all mankind and for all times to come. He addressed them as mankind and not as Muslims. He said, O mankind, all of you are equal. There is no preference to an Arab over a non-Arab, no preference to a white man over a black. All men, whatever nation or tribe they belong to, and whatever station in life they may hold, are equal. The only preference that can be conceived is one's fear of God. At the end he said, Tell me if I have delivered the message. They all said in one voice, Yes, O prophet of God, you have surely delivered the message. He said, Now promise me you will go on spreading this message to the whole of mankind, to the corners of the earth. Whoever is present must go on delivering the message to those who are absent, and this should go on till the end of time. Chapter 8. The Prophet's View on Racism Racism is another hotly debated question. Though many civilized nations would deny its undercurrents, my experience suggests that it is found in every people and in every part of the world. It is not just a question of white feeling a kind of superiority over the black, but also the black nurture a feeling of vindictive superiority over the white. It remains the most dangerous undercurrent of human thought and motivation. Under the explicit instructions of the Holy Prophet, I deliver to you this message of racial equality. All of us being the creation of God, belonging to the same ancestry, how can we permit ourselves to sink to the level where issues of human superiority over others take grip of us? When the time of his departure from this life was near, the Holy Prophet was given a choice by God to either return to him or spend some more years in this earthly existence. His answer was, I prefer to return to my exalted Lord. These were the last words he uttered before passing on to eternal life. This is the man called Muhammad. His reality has been long distorted by the unreal legends built by his adversaries. It is high time that the West and the whole world following it stop believing blindfolded in the legends and return to the reality. The reality of Muhammad is far from being hate-worthy. His reality is only to be loved and is always to be loved till the end of mankind.